Well, let's have a word of prayer together. We'll get into our study this morning. And I invite you to bow your your heads and hearts with me at this time. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and to worship thee and to sing praises to thee and and to usher in the Sabbath day together and, and be together on this most holy day that you've created. We know there's a time coming, Father, when when we will be tested. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us as we prepare for that time, uh, the great test that's soon upon us. And, and when we pass these little tests on the road to that bigger test, we may have victory in Jesus. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us this morning, be upon your church and your people. And forgive us our sins, Lord. We pray forgiveness as we claim the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the wonderful blessings you've given to us and uh, the opportunity to have a second chance. There's going to come a time where probation will close and it will be decided forever. We wish to be in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so we thank you for Jesus and all he has done for us and giving us an opportunity to have our names remain in that book. Please give me the words to speak this morning, Father. It's an important topic as we discuss the the spoils of war, the reward that you have. And we pray that we will receive the good reward because we, we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We thank you for hearing this prayer and answering it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Yes, I've entitled this particular message, Spoils of War. This is part one. In the next couple of studies, I'll be finishing up again this this series uh, that we started, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago at least anyway. This is my body. And I'm praying that these messages will take hold upon us as a people and, and we can come together in unity. And we can come together and be organized and we can finish this work of character perfection and spreading the gospel, the work that Jesus has given us. Now when we talk about war, what is the definition really of war? You know, there are varying ideas about this. You do a little bit of a study on it. But boiled down, war is a state of armed conflict between really autonomous organizations or coalitions of those organizations. Um, and when we talked about who and what the church is, we know there's only two churches, right? And But there are, there are different coalitions of those um, two organizations. Isn't that correct? War is generally characterized by extreme collective um, uh, aggression, destruction, and and usually there's a high mortality rate, isn't there? It's interesting that the techniques that are used by the particular group to carry out war is known as warfare. And I will add that an absence of war is usually called peace. <laughs> Jesus said he brings peace, doesn't he? But why war? Why go to war? There is no scholarly agreement on which are the most common motivations for war. Motivations may be different for those ordering the war, let's say, than for those that are undertaking the war. For example, if you go back through history, um, I think of like the Third Punic War. Rome's leaders may have wished to make war with Carthage for the purpose of eliminating them, you know, because they were a rival, while the individual soldiers may have been motivated uh, because of money. They wished to be making money. They were mercenaries. And since many people are involved, a war may acquire a life of its own from the confluence of many different motivations. So sometimes it's hard to, to pinpoint exactly why. But I found it interesting that an interpretation of the ancient Jewish commentary on the fight between Cain and Abel that we read about there in Genesis 4, it states that there are three universal reasons for war. For any war, this is what they say. First, economics. The rich against the poor. you know, The haves against the have-nots. The second would be power. Someone who wishes to rule over another. And the third, they said, is religion. Isn't it interesting? 
Ultimately, a conflict or war is waged to gain something over another. Isn't that true? When you really boil it down. And this can be referred to as the spoils of war or the spoils of victory, meaning any profits extracted as a result of winning a war or military activity. You're in it for something. You're going to gain something over another. Good or, good or bad, I will say. Some wars are inevitable. Some are um, necessary, should I say. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 9, notice what we read. And there was war in heaven. So sometimes war is a necessity. It says here, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought. And who'd they fight against? It says against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven for him, see. And it says, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So what was war again? War is a state of armed conflict between two organizations. And here, we're told in Revelation 12 that there was war in heaven. Between Michael, that's Jesus, and and the angels there, and the dragon, who's the devil, and his angels. Sometimes there is a necessity. But we'll find that there are spoils. Someone's going to have victory, aren't they? And so there was a war in heaven and it has been brought to this earth. And we are engaged in this great controversy, my friends. We are. There's no neutral ground in this conflict. And to the victor will go the spoils. There will be, as we read our Bibles and we believe the word of God, there will be a reward for God's church. But I will also say there will be a reward for those who lose. The spoils for the children of Israel after 40 years of character perfecting there in the wilderness was to cross the Jordan into the promised land. This was a type of the final spoils, you could say, for all those who choose to be on the Lord's side. To enter the promised land of a new earth and and to have eternal life with Jesus. The spoils for the children of Israel who chose not to be on the Lord's side was what? They died in that wilderness. They did not enter the promised land. And so there are really two rewards that each person may choose from, and we would be wise to be making careful considerations (laughs) and decisions as to which reward we will choose. Which one will be ours? And these two rewards are two of the most important subjects to understand, I believe, in the entire Bible. For if they are not understood, inevitably you will end up with the wrong reward. I read something interesting in Job chapter 15 regarding the wicked man. He says, because he covereth his face with his fatness and maketh callops of fat on his flanks and he dwelleth in desolate cities and in houses which no man inhabiteth, which are ready to become heaps, he shall not be rich, neither shall his substance continue, neither shall he prolong the perfection thereof upon the earth. He shall not depart out of darkness. The flame shall dry up his branches and by the breath of his mouth shall he go away. This is very interesting, what Job's saying here. This is a picture of the luxurious and intemperate living of the wicked that care not of the things of God. And as Job describes, those who do not consider the eternal rewards of following God are destined to ruin. So it's very important for us to understand what the Word tells us about the reward for obedience and the reward for disobedience to the will of God. 
And we need to ask ourselves, as we look at ourselves and where we stand in the sight of God, which reward will be ours? What will be my spoils of victory when this conflict ends? Have you ever had someone say to you, I've got good news and I've got bad news? I think most of us have probably experienced that. And which do you usually choose to hear first? Do you? The bad news? Well, I do too. I usually choose the bad news because I want to get it out of the way and I want to hear the good news and, and, and so I can be encouraged then. <laughs> See? The most pleasant part of this study, I think, is the reward of the faithful. But I'm going to begin with the reward of the unfaithful first. The bad news, so to speak, uh, depending on which side you're on, right? So we can get it out of the way and then end with the encouraging truth concerning the reward of the faithful. The Bible is clear that God has promised to reward His church. It's called the church triumphant. The reward of the faithful and the obedient is the best reward, friends, that's imaginable. But it's not so for the disobedient. The reward of the disobedient is as fearful as the reward of the obedient is joyous. Go back to Job chapter 21 and verse 29. He says, Have ye not asked them that go by the way? And do ye not know their tokens that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction? They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. The day of wrath. That's what they're headed towards. The day of doom. It's coming for those who've turned you see, from God's holy law and going after their own way. A day of doom and a day of wrath is the reward that is quietly creeping in upon them. I'll say fearful was the account given by the prophets when they saw this day, this day of wrath, this day of doom. So fearful that they could hardly give utterance to their words. In Ezekiel chapter 7, beginning with verse 5, Ezekiel saw this fearful day of doom, and this is what he exclaimed. It says there, beginning in verse 5, it says, Thus saith the Lord God, an evil, and only evil, behold, is come. An end is come, the end is come. It It watcheth for thee, behold, it is come. The morning is come unto thee, O thou that dwellest in the land. The time is come, the day of trouble is near, and not the sounding again of the mountains. Now will I shortly pour out my fury upon thee, and accomplish mine anger upon thee, and I will judge thee according to thy ways, and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. And mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. I will recompense thee according to thy ways, and thine abominations that are in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth. Doesn't sound too good for the wicked, does it? Who wants to be on the wrong side in this conflict and face a God of justice? For the disobedient, the reward is far from a day of rejoicing, isn't it? It's a day of sorrowful lamentation. The reward of doom is soon to fall upon the despisers of God's grace, my friends. Oh, they put it off. They think. They may think that it will not fall on them. But the Bible says that their hopes are in vain. Amos chapter 6 and verse 3 says, Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near. You see, they put off the time of divine judgment and enthrone violence in their heart, but it's still coming, isn't it? And friends, we're almost there. (laughs) Millions today are saying, The days of God's wrath, it's not going to come, or if it does come, it'll be many years in the future. 
But Zephaniah 1 verse 14 says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. We need to step back and take a look at our condition. and Be honest with ourselves, friends. Which side are we on in this conflict? Which reward will be ours? What spoils will we reap? When does this day of wrath begin? When does it begin? Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. The day of wrath and doom begins with the pouring out of the seven last plagues. And those who have persisted, you see, in following their own course of disobedience to God's Word and His law, they begin to experience the reward that they've chosen for themselves. Proverbs 13 verse 15 says, Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgression is hard. Right now, transgression seems easy. It seems easy. Right now, the road of disobedience appears to be what? It appears to be the road to riches, the road to honor. But the day of wrath will reveal the true character of each path, friends. And the day of wrath will reveal what the reward of the disobedient really is. And there will be gnashing of teeth. Let's go to Revelation chapter 16. Speaking of those seven last plagues, Verse 2, And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. You see, we still have a little bit of time, don't we, before we get to this point. There's still a little bit of time that probation is open. There's a little bit of time to make the right choice. God's wanting a people to spread that, that last call so that you don't have to go through these plagues, this wrath. You won't reap these spoils. Did you catch who it is that receives the seven last plagues there in that verse? Revelation 16.2 It's those who have the mark of the beast. Those who have been obedient to all of God's law have the seal of the living God. They're preserved from these, these terrible plagues. You see, because the faith will have a different reward than the day of wrath. They're present during the day of wrath and doom, but God mercifully shields them and gives them a much better reward. They receive the spoils of victory. That victory that Jesus has won for the redeemed. And so God holds before us two rewards, you see. We have a choice. The one so full of joy and contentment that it surpasses all our imagination and the other more terrible than man can describe. And the sad thing is, friends, tragic really, that the majority chooses the dreadful reward of wrath. They've been deceived. Remember we read in Revelation 12, he, Satan deceives the whole world. They think they're, they're in good shape. But Jesus has given a warning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, Enter ye in at the what? The straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. 
Friends, I will tell you, the decisions we make, we, that we make every day is either for that straight gate and the narrow way or the broad way that leads to destruction. Every decision. And because of the cross that's involved in following Jesus, few go by that narrow way, don't they? The vast majority of the world takes the broad, easy way. And too late, they'll find out that they've gone the hard way in the long run. Isn't that true? And even though there are the most solemn warnings in the entire Bible against following the beast, prophecy tells us that all the world will follow that beast power. It's incredible. It's incredible. The power of deception. Look at our world today. Good is called evil, evil good, and it's it's stunning, isn't it? It's stunning how people can be so blinded to what is good and evil. And these majority, this majority of the world, they'll follow the beast power. Revelation 13 and verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. Although it's only those who were deceived into following the beast power that receive the seven last plagues, that is almost the entire world. It's just a small obedient group that's delivered from these dreadful plagues, these scourges. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, there were only eight people that got on the ark. The whole world drowned. It's incredible to think of such a thing, that so many people will choose the broad path to destruction. But don't we see it in the news every single day? How can anyone really describe the terrible consequences of these seven final plagues? Let me share this with you. It's from the book, The Great Controversy. Pages 621, 622, right around in that area. prophet says the time of trouble such as never was is soon to open upon us and we shall need an experience which we do not now possess and which many are too indolent to obtain. It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality but this is not true the crisis before us. The most vivid presentation cannot reach the magnitude of the ordeal. Do you know what she's saying here? It is going to be worse than we can possibly imagine. That's staggering. How are we preparing for that? How do you prepare for something that you can't possibly imagine? Well, our only preparation is to draw closer to Jesus. That's all it can can be. That's the only protection we have, friends. Because these plagues are the final retribution to those who've refused to follow the Lord all the way. God offered up all He could, all heaven in His Son Jesus, and they have rejected His Son. They have rejected the riches and glory, the most magnificent gift that he could possibly give. They have rejected life, truth, and the way. If you continue on in Revelation 16, you see just how terrible it's going to be. There are going to be terrible sores worse than any human has ever experienced before that fall upon those who receive the mark of the beast. That's verse 2. Then the Lord will give those who are seeking to kill His people blood to drink. 
You read verses 3 to 7 there. And then next, the sun scorches them with heat hotter than the hottest place on this earth. And after the sun scorches with that white hot heat, the Lord turns off the sun and, and men gnaw their tongues for great darkness. You read that in verse 10. And support for the beast finally dries up under the sixth plague. Verses 12 to 16. And then the final plague finishes the destruction judgments by pelting the earth with 60 to 100 pound hail. What destruction. Now, I've run into this before. Discussing such things, it may be asked why God would torment men in such a fearful way after the close of human probation, when there will be no opportunity for repentance. Why does Christ not come and terminate the reign of sin immediately, right now? Has anybody ever asked you that? When you look back in the Old Testament, in those times, various calamities such as, oh, invasion, famine, uh, pestilences, um, earthquakes, other natural disasters. Gee, aren't we seeing these today? But they were often permitted by God as a, a disciplinary agency, so to speak, to bring men to repentance. But quite obviously, the seven last plagues don't serve that purpose. However, there can be no doubt that the plagues do serve a necessary function in the plan of heaven. Wouldn't you agree with that? There's got to be a reason for these seven last plagues. What could that reason be? Let's look at Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. Nahum asks, What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Sin is not going to rise up a second time, friends. And so God must remove all doubt concerning His government and His character. He's got to remove all doubt. And in order to do that, He gives to the wicked the reward they sought. in which is revealed, actually, the true intentions of the government and character of Satan and their outcome, the ultimate outcome, if he were to reign. And this also reveals the true character of God, you see, in the form of His church on earth. The sin problem will never rise up ever again in all creation. And I think you can see this when you consider that the first four or five plagues lead the wicked to realize that they've been fighting against God. But instead of repenting, what do they do? It says that they curse Him more bitterly than ever and become even more resolute in their opposition. So the plagues serve to reveal the spirit of rebellion which fully controls their hearts. And God's justice in destroying them is made evident. But conversely, if you look at the the remnant at that time, the saints, the trials that uh, of that great time of trouble, the Bible says, that come with those plagues, they actually reveal the Christ-like character of the church, of the saints. It's very interesting. It finally reveals the true character motives. One for the good, the obedient. One for the bad, the disobedient. Their characters are fully revealed to all creation. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So his willingness to die for another is the this supreme manifestation of love we read here that Jesus is talking about. So the intent to take another, another person's life marks the ultimate degree of hatred. Would you agree with that? It's just the opposite of what Jesus is saying. 
And so during the last two plagues, a situation develops that makes this distinction very apparent. Even to the participants themselves. And the justice of God in terminating human history is made evident to men as well as angels as to all creation. Because you see, it's at this point when it will be demonstrated before the universe that to a man, the remnant people would rather die than disobey God. And that those who have chosen to follow Satan would, if permitted, slay all who stand in the way of their purpose to control the earth. It's made extremely plain. Because you see what's going to happen. There's going to be a death decree. They're going to want to put God's true saints to death. And they will be caught in the very act of attempting to execute that death decree. And so they're going to stand without an excuse before God. Their character has been revealed. And so the line is clearly drawn between those who serve God and those who serve Him not. And so through the the people who are unconverted, the devil is permitted to demonstrate what the universe would be like if he was allowed to control it. And that ultimately, friends, is the reason for this day of wrath. And the reward of the disobedient... The plagues is far from pleasant, but this is not the end. (laughs) There's more and worse, really, still to come. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we'll begin with verse 14. And the heaven departed as a scroll. When it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Can you imagine that? How can you imagine it? Last Sabbath there was an earthquake up in Michigan. And it was like 4.2 or 4.5, something like that. And and, uh, the church in Battle Creek, the members there, they felt it. That's nothing, friends. That's nothing as to what's coming. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. Why? Why do they want to commit suicide here? Fall on us and hide us from who? the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Well, the seventh plague is none other than the second coming of Jesus. I'd encourage you to read chapter 40 of the Great Controversy. It pertains to this. But it... It is the second coming of Jesus. That's the seventh plague. And and what a day of terror it is for those who have received the mark of the beast. So instead of the appearing of Jesus being a day of joy and gladness, it's one of gloom and sadness for those who have turned their backs on Christ and taken the easy way, that wide path in life, which is the way Jesus said to destruction. Joel chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds, and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains. How 
How can we imagine such a day, friends? Those who have not loved Jesus enough to keep His words are filled with terror as they see the one whom they know they have rejected. It makes me shudder when I talk to people. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear about God. And forget about warning them about what's coming. Giving them something to think about as to their own condition. Spiritually speaking. Joel says, blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Nahum chapter 2 verse 10. She is empty and void and waste and the heart melteth and the knees smite together and much pain is in all loins and the faces of them all gather blackness. Beloved, the horror is irrepressible. It shows in the countenance and says that their knees knock together because of their fear and their fright. It is a day of hopeless agony. You see, because they recognize Jesus. They recognize His voice. But they refuse to heed His call. Now they get the spoils that they've been wanting by their selfishness and their wickedness and their terrible rejection of the Son of God. From the book The Great Controversy, page 642. That voice which penetrates the ear of the dead, they know. How often have its plaintive, tender tones called them to repentance. How often has it been heard in the the touching entreaties of a friend, a brother, a redeemer? To the rejecters of His grace, no other could be so full of condemnation, so burdened with denunciation as that voice which has so long pleaded, Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die? Oh, that it were to them the voice of a stranger. Says Jesus, I have called and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. That voice awakens memories which they would fain blot out, warnings despised, invitations refused, privileges slighted. I say, friends, I I shudder and I tremble when I talk to people and I talk about Jesus and I want to get specific and uh, I tremble for that person. You see, when you know the Word of God, you know where they're headed. And so the second coming of Jesus, which delivers the righteous, it actually strikes terror into those who have refused to keep all of God's commandments. And the glory that is revealed from heaven as Jesus comes in His own glory and in the glory of His Father and the glory of all the holy angels not only fills the disobedient with terror, But the glory is as a flame of fire devouring them. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning with verse 7, Paul said, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 
the glory that fills the sky is so much brighter than the sun that it, it actually slays those who have neglected to follow Jesus with their entire heart. You see, it's got to be an entire consecration. You have to give it all to Jesus. You have to give it all up. Your entire heart. Then he can go to work, you see. And you have these blessings of peace and joy. In Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, Paul said, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And so those who persisted in breaking God's law, well, friends, they're unfit to stand in God's presence. And so they're smitten, they're destroyed by the brightness and the glory of His coming. As it's revealed from heaven, as He, he comes in the clouds. That's why they say, fall on us. Destroy us. We don't want to see Him. Now there will be those who thought that they were keeping the law of God. But they'll find out too late that they were not. And they too will share in the same fate. Jesus made this pretty clear in Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth, isn't that interesting? Doeth. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Friends, do you realize that Judas, Judas prophesied in the name of Christ? Judas cast out devils in the name of Christ? Judas did many wonderful works in the name of Christ. You realize that? So there will be those who pick an argument with the Lord. Hey, we've done all these things. But in actuality, they're going to share in the same fate as those who called for the rocks to fall upon them. You see, they thought they were saved. They thought that they were saved so much so that they, they appealed the decision that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has made. But they were deceived, you see. And Jesus said, Depart from me. I never knew you. That's where Jesus said there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because they thought they had a one-way ticket to heaven. I mean, they were a member of the church. Judas was among the disciples. Surely their church membership would save them. They did incredible works in Jesus' name. But their membership wasn't written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which is the most important book there is. For those of us who live on this earth, But they thought they had a one-way ticket there. And too late they find out that their name was blotted from the records and there's nothing that they or anyone else can do about it. You see, because then they're counted with the unbelievers and they're destroyed by the brightness of the Lord's coming. And what a day of terror for those who despise that righteousness of Christ to reject Jesus. That's what the Father says. What have you decided about my son? 
That's the question for each one of us. What's going to be your answer? I'll tell you, the fate of all those who refuse to follow all the Lord's commandments, it's awful. And most people agree with most of the commandments, don't they? But usually there's one or two that cut directly across their path and they decide that it isn't important to keep all of them. And I'll tell you though, that decision, if they hold to that, that's going to fix their destiny for that reward that's awaiting the wicked. We, you can see throughout the Bible, many times, I mean many times, friends, we as human beings, we get what we ask for. But you see, we think we may be asking for one thing, but we're actually asking for another. That's what deception is. And we get what we ask for. Many times. And people they'll say, Oh, you know, they, they don't have any any issues with a number of God's laws. But what do we read in James chapter two? Verse ten For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Remember you've heard me say this before. Really there's only one law the law of God. But there's ten parts. And this is what James is saying. If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you're guilty of all, because really it's only one law. The obedience to God. He says, For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. And so he gives us some counsel here. He says, So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Because if you keep this law, all parts of this law, you have liberty. You're not under the law. You're not guilty of breaking it. And so you will not be under the plagues. If a person keeps most of the law of God, yet refuses to keep one part of it. It's just as if he's disregarded that entire law, the law of God. And friends, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, we know what this says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It is the whole duty of man to keep all of God's law. All parts. And if you really think about it, in reality, there are ten promises of love. Love for God and love for man. Isn't that true? That's why Jesus put it so simply in John fourteen fifteen: If you love me, keep my commandments. Tragically, the entire world is breaking at least one of the commandments. And they'll go on thinking everything's all right. But they're going to find out too late that they've been duped and will be consumed then by the brightness of Christ's second coming. And then will be fulfilled the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah twenty-five thirty-three, And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even unto the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered, nor buried. They shall be dung upon the ground. Because what's going to happen when Jesus comes? The righteous, they're going to rise to meet the Savior in the clouds of glory, but the disobedient, they're going to be slain by the brightness of His coming, and they're going to be as refuse upon the ground. 
as Jeremiah said, as dung upon the ground. They're not going to be lamented. They're not going to be gathered together. And they're not going to be buried. They're going to be scattered around the earth. And then you know what happens? And then commences that awful supper of the disobedient. Let's look at Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Sounds dreadful. Doesn't it? A rod of iron. You know, the ancient shepherd's rod, do a little study on this, it had a double function. The crook on one end served to help and guide the sheep. But on the other end, there was a heavy ferrule, which is a a metal cap or a ring to, to strengthen that rod. And so the other end made it a weapon. So one end was to help guide the sheep. The other end was a weapon. And this was used for the protection of the flock. You know, to repel and kill wild animals that would come and try to scatter and destroy it. And so it is now time for the good shepherd to use the rod of iron against the nations for the deliverance of his flock on earth. It's very descriptive, the Bible is, isn't it? Look at verse 16, Revelation 19, verse 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. The supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Did you know, friends, that to be devoured by the scavengers of the skies constituted one of the curses for disobedience that Moses pronounced? in his, you know, his uh, uh, valedictory address to the people of Israel. Keep your finger there in Revelation 19. Go to Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 24. That's what I'm talking about here. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until you be destroyed. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them, and flee seven ways before them, and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air, and unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. And so when it talks about the supper of the Lord, this is what it's speaking of. That gruesome reward of the disobedient is, disobedient is to be eaten by the fowls of heaven at the supper of the great God. Let's go back to Revelation 19, verse 21. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon... Now, that's not the remnant of God. That means the rest of them. Were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Wow. Friends, as awful as it is, it's the Word of God. And so Jesus is pictured as returning to earth as a King of kings and a Lord of lords. 
Something changed, didn't it? I mean, no more does he wear the crown of thorns. No more is he cradled in a lowly manger. He returns as the conquering king. And then the angel makes the most awful pronouncement. He tells the birds that it's supper time. It is the supper of the great God. And those who have refused to wear the robe of righteousness that's woven in the loom of heaven for them, those who have refused to to make the necessary preparations to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, well, they receive their part in the supper of the great God. They've refused to keep God's law. And so, consequently, they've received the most awful visitation of God's wrath that's imaginable. And so they become food for the vultures and the scavengers of the earth. It's terrible, isn't it? What a terrible reward. But they're deserving of it. They earned it. They wanted it, but they didn't know they wanted it. Revelation 16.6 For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Paul says in Hebrews 10.29, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Beloved, I'll tell you how careful we need to be to choose the right supper and the right reward. Amen? The spoils of victory in Jesus. There's going to be a reward. There's spoils of war. Always has been. This is no different. Jesus said in Revelation 22.12, He said, Behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. (laughs) What is our work, friends? Right now there's still time. Right now there is time to choose the reward of the saints. Not to be motivated by riches, friends, but the results of following Jesus. We'll take a look at this reward the next time we get together. Think about this this study, friends. And then think about those you know are walking a wrong path. The Holy Spirit's trying to enter their hearts. Don't ever give up. Pray for your friends, your family. Try to be Jesus to them. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for your Holy Word. There are somber words. There are words that we read that are incredible and they they are unimaginable to our minds. But we know they're the truth. For you're a God that cannot lie. And Father, we not only think of our own condition, in, in your sight but we think of our friends and our loved ones and, and our neighbors and maybe those who don't know you yet we pray that you will help us to, to lead them to see Jesus we want to sit down with them at the marriage supper of the Lamb we don't want them to partake of the, the supper of God there where the birds feast Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for giving us this awesome gift. We're so undeserving. And we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.